Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night show where we always like to get a guest in to pick all the tunes. And tonight I'm delighted to say my guest is the author and artist Sarah Baum, whose uh, latest book, uh, Handiwork, uh, will be published on Wednesday. Sarah, great to have you here. It's great to be here. Now, did I get your... First time I interviewed you was five years ago with Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither. I wasn't entirely sure then I got your surname entirely correct. Is it Baum or Balma? Oh, I don't even know. Like French and German people have corrected me on the pronunciation of my own name. So (laughs) it's possibly Balma, is it? it, Maybe in German it would be. Yeah, Um, it's quite it seems you get a part of it in lots of names like like Noah Baumbach. Yeah. Or um, well, Frank L. Baum. Yes. The, who wrote The Wizard of Oz. That's who I'm next to on the bookshelves. Brilliant. What, what, <laughs> but he has no E on the end of his. Well, what do you so. call yourself then? How do you... How do you? I say Baum, but um, like the name is Flemish and I have no Flemish relatives that I know of, you know, yeah. as in the name is from my dad's side of the family and he's he, he was from North Yorkshire. So like there's, I have a strong suspicion that as the generations passed the North Yorkshire contingent of the family started mispronouncing the name. So, <laughs> And your, your, your dad is the reason for that potentially romantic story that you were born in a caravan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, it, I mean, it was a standard caravan and I remember it being out the back like for years and everyone being heartbroken when, when we finally sold it. Um, but I didn't get it because I didn't really remember. Like I was only four months when we moved to Cork and settled there. But before that, my dad had been working on the gas lines, the laying pipes mm-hmm. down over yeah, the island of England. Um, and then I guess he'd been doing it here beforehand. He was uh, sort of like an Englishman who was contracted in because at the time, none of the Irishmen had the sort of skill set to be um, to be doing that particular work. And that's how he met my mum. But then after that, they um, after they were married, he went back to the UK and she didn't want to want to let him go back and sort of live the, the life of a working man <laughs> travelling around England. So she, um, they lived together in a caravan and pulled up on sites and sort of stayed there for however long the job worked. So Uh-oh. my sister and I were both born then in different places. Yeah. And I went home to the caravan. And, and where, was you, where was your mother from? Mum grew up in Dublin, but she used to summer in Cork and her dad, uh, her dad was from the city, so he'd be the closest... You know, thoroughbred Irish, <laughs> if I can put it that way. And, and that probably explains your very first musical choice tonight, because uh, although born in Ballyshannon, very much associated with Cork, Rory Gallagher. So this is your mum. 
This is this is from my mom. This is what I call like my in utero soundtrack. Before I was born, I was listening to this. <laughs> so t- tell me about your mom then. Was she was she a music fan? Was she someone who travelled around to see shows? Was she better, well, she, a hippie or what? Or a rocker? Or yeah, a, yeah, know? definitely a bit of a rocker. And um, she uh, would have always been the musical influence because you know when you're a kid, you're listening to what you what your parents put your way Um, and dad I'll actually come back to that later on I have picked a song for dad but um, he wasn't uh, he wasn't sort of bringing music into my life as a child whereas mum was and she was bringing in Rory Gallagher Bob Dylan you know Bruce Springsteen Dire Straits Um, and I picked Rory Gallagher because you know the the connection to Cork is so strong Um, and uh, and I there were there are still to this day pictures on the kitchen wall of you know mum with her with her um, festival sort of t shirts and uh, flared jeans and um, yeah so okay here we go this is Rory and Bad Penny. And that's Rory Gallagher, Bad Penny, the first choice tonight of Sarah Baum, who's my uh, guest. Sarah's uh, latest book, Handiwork, has been published this Wednesday, but we're going to talk about that and everything else as the night goes on. So, Sarah, we, we mentioned your mum and dad, uh, the, the caravan existence early on. Um, you would consider, what, you consider yourself a, a Cork woman, but whereabouts? Oh, I always consider myself from Cork. And I find I've... Def- you know, I spend a lot of time defending it. Well, no, I don't. I don't, to be honest. It's It's been really lovely the last couple of years to be acknowledged as an Irish writer. Um, you know, and my name sort of sits alongside Barry's and Barrett's and no one ever questions it, mm-hmm. um, which is lovely. But, um, you know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I was I had a very strong sense of being different because I went to a small Catholic primary. And at the time, there were about sort of 60, 70 students in the school. And it was very weird to be half English. Um, like my dad was divorced before he married my mum. And so my mum, even though she was practicing Catholic, wasn't allowed to go up for Holy Communion. Wow. <laughs> so you were the talk of the town, really, were you? Well, that's, yeah. I was a bastard in the eyes of the church, wow. I suppose. Um even though I was, you know, just going through all the sacraments like all the other kids. But at that, I mean, I laugh because at now, I mean, we are, where I grew up is not far from Carrigtool. And I've heard that in Carrigtool Primary School, there's something like 33 different ethnicities in mm. the school. <laughs> so to think that it seems laughable that I was, you know, culturally different when I was a kid, because my difference now is is nothing. Yeah, I mean, even even with the divorce, you know. We're not talking about eighteen ninety here. This is recently. Uh, no, like this is nineteen late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Um, I was in school up until nineteen ninety eight. Wow. No, yeah, about that. And did you have an um, English accent did you, when you were younger in your time? Um, well, I always had a less less of a Cork accent right. then. I yeah. do still get that all the time. As soon as you say you're, you're from Cork. I get the, but you don't have a Cork accent. <laughs> Maybe they think you're from Montanati. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the 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 accent was kind of evened out. Yeah, my yeah. sister has a stronger accent because she's lived in the city for years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it depends on. I think I probably I probably partially wanted to be different as well, which feeds into pursuing an artistic path. 
But, and, and that's the thing. You're known. You're known now as a writer, but you, you plan to be an artist, really. I mean, you, and you are an artist. But that was the that was the the, the trajectory that you were on was to be an artist. So, uh, where where did the before we started talking about the writing, where did the interest in making things come from? Do you think? Oh well, that was. I mean, making things is it's something I write about in handiwork. It's yeah. uh, and oh, I can't remember the name of the artist, but there's an artist who said. Um, by means of explaining herself as an artist, she says, well, you know, I just used to make stuff as a kid and I just kept making stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we all do that when we're small. And um, and I well, feel... OK, well, just to break that down a bit, I mean, all kids make stuff with blocks and with Lego and with things like that. But were you making weird constructions with tin cans and buckets and <laughs> sticks and whatever? whatever the rest of it was? I was a big fan of them. Do you remember? Well, no, you're... <laughs> not Careful sure. what you say next. <laughs> Do you remember Mary Fitzgerald? Make and do with Mary Fitzgerald. Make and do, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, it was maybe on Bosco. It was possibly an item on Bosco. Uh, yes. Um, I didn't watch it faithfully, but I'm aware of it. But I love that spoke to me a lot yes. more than um, to paint by numbers. Or, yeah. well, Don Conroy also yeah. spoke to me because he was painting animals. Yeah. Um, and I, I did like making things always more so. And I could always, even from, um, I guess, in secondary school, I would have chosen to make rather than paint or draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, like if, if you gave me a lump of clay, I could make you a good head. Mm-hmm. But if you gave me a pen and paper, I could draw you a crap head. You right. know? Yeah. Um, so and in terms of the more craft side of it, did you did you learn to crochet and sew and all that kind of stuff? I do learning to crochet in school in school mm. um can't remember what the boys were doing when we were learning to crochet um and to knit mm-hmm. um and but I never had a strong sense and to sew I suppose but like this was you know I feel like okay I'm not that old but a lot has changed yeah. um in that sort of 20-30 years so like I remember mum sewing up clothes that that tore darning socks mm. um and so I'd have had, you know, I'd have had a certain amount of skills, but in a way, the writing was always making up for my lack of lack of a skill. So what, did the two things go in parallel, really, did they, for a while, writing and making things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early in life, definitely. Yeah. Um, I liked both um, and didn't realise I had to pick between them, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just working up to your next musical choice, really, here, because you were <laughs> only, you're only four when you went to your first gig. You, you, your, mother was, your mother was bombarding you with, with music all the time by the sounds of things. Yeah, well, it was there. Yeah, it was in the background. It wasn't instruction, wasn't it? It wasn't, no, today we're going to listen to... No, no, definitely not. No, it was like mum was a housewife when we were growing up. So I guess she was knocking around with the kids for the days at home. I'm sure it was harder than that. (laughs) Spoken like a childish person. (laughs) But she wanted to bring you at the age of four to see Michael Jackson. Um, Yes, yeah. And how it came... Well, I mean, at the time, I guess this was the late 80s. Michael Jackson was huge. He was pop music um, and uh, and everyone was into him. So I guess he's my first memory of being into music that wasn't what my mother had brought with her from her past. Right. He was the first like current thing. And uh, and he played in Parky Cueve in 88 and it was the July. So I would have been just turned four. Um, and a neighbour of ours was working on the door. He was a doorman. So we didn't buy tickets. And we went up, um, a, a bunch of, I think, a, a handful of kids, me and my sister, definitely. And then my mum and her friend, who was the wife of the man who was on the door. And uh, and the plan was to sneak in, to, to get in without paying. And uh, there was horrendous, now mum tells the story, I can't remember. Um, but there was horrendous traffic on the way up because, of course, you know, Cork was jointed. This massive concert was happening. And, um, and as mum tells it, she said, the neighbour said, OK, 
we'll say a few decades of the rosary now to make sure we get up <laughs> through the traffic, pulled out the rosary beads. And we got up, we got there in time and we snuck in. And, um, and my memory of it is like, I couldn't get over the fact that he was so far away and so small, you know, yeah. because obviously I'd imagined that it would be, um, you know, it, it would be right in front of me. I remember huge screens. But, um, but I mean, now it's a source of great sadness to me in a way. It's such a strong childhood memory of, with a musical connection. Um, and this, these T-shirts that we got at the gig, this, this subsequently, um, mum must have taken a fi- picture of me and Emma, um, me and my sister, um, wearing these T-shirts that were huge, like they went down to our knees. And we had them belted around the middle, a sort of belt around Michael Jackson's neck. Um, and, uh, and I and I mean, my, my sister as well remembers, I was so small, um, sort of pushing together the kitchen chairs. Did you ever do this as a kid? And pretending it was a stage yeah. uh, and performing on the little stage. And these, these are all connected to Michael Jackson for me. And so it, it saddens me so much that, that he's blacklisted now. Um, and he still exists in my musical past. Um, and I chose this song because, um, well, it was a song that I loved, um, uh, but it was for him. It was his first hit, I think, his first number one um, as a solo. Um, and he was 14 when he recorded it. It was the soundtrack to a film of the same name, a film called Ben, that was about a rat. Like, you know, you couldn't make this up, um, that a boy befriends and the song uh, doesn't mention a rat, but is is a song about friendship, essentially, but also I feel a sort of song about otherness, um, about being kind to something that is ostracised or weird. Um, and that's been a strong theme in my fiction as well. Um, and I watched only recently um, because this was uh, the song that was, uh, you know, a movie soundtrack. Um, he sung this Michael Jackson at the 1973 uh, Oscar ceremony. Uh, and there's a, a, you know, a film of this on YouTube. Um, and he just looking at it and seeing how young he was, you know, and, and how, how beautiful and thinking of everything that, that he became and everything that happened after, um, I thought was of interest. So I thought I'd go out on a limb and choose a Michael Jackson song. <laughs> Michael Jackson and, and Ben, the choice of Sarah Baum, who's with me in, in studio tonight. We had the inevitable conversation, Sarah, while that was playing about the artist and the art. And uh, it, it is a serious point, though, isn't it, when you think about it? Because there are so many writers and, and uh, musicians and people, you know, who did not lead exemplary lives at all. Mm. And yet their work will remain on gallery walls and will still be read. Yeah, uh, I in in making my song choices, I was kind of um, my emphasis was or I was concerned with the songs that told the stories from my life. Mm. Um, so, like I say, this song told a story from early in my life, and that picture frame on the wall of my mother's kitchen, you know, mm. um, tells a story. But um, and I think when you you know when you sanitize you know reputations like that or, or I don't know. I guess it's I, from a completely personal point of view. I just feel sad that 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 I now feel feel like those memories are wrong. You know, those happy memories I had of childhood. I kind of mm-hmm. go, oh, Michael Jackson. You know, I wish I'd been listening to something else. Mm. But I can't go back and change that. So what do I do with that? Um, well, that's an interesting point. 
It, it, it really is. Now, Sarah, um, in terms of uh, the writing as opposed to the making of things, and maybe there's, there, we'll discuss whatever connections there are between those two things as time goes on, but were you the sort of kid who would write a very good composition at school or a very good poem and then end up with it being put on the wall and the teacher would point to it and say, look, at that's good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes and no. I remember, actually, I won a prize for a story that was called I Am a Marmot. Now, a marmot is Even like Even to a... know what a marmot is at that age is fairly... <laughs> I'd give you a prize for that. I still can't... I can't actually remember whether I chose the marmot or whether someone set the compass. Surely they didn't no, set no, it. No, no, no. I must have come I up. A, a marmot's I am a like dog a... is what you would normally get. Yeah, and of course, yeah. of course she went ahead and wrote that eventually anyway, but we'll get, get, we'll get, <laughs> yeah. we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> it took me years to yeah. go around to that. So I am a marmot, sorry. You were a marmot's watching... like a groundhog. Yeah. It's like a North American ground mammal, yeah. ground rat. <laughs> um, and I remembered that winning a prize. I'd say the teacher was probably just so baffled by its strangeness. Um, and, and it is funny how early in life when someone pats you on the back and goes, oh, you're good at this, mm-hmm. you kind of seize onto it for... It's quite common to writers, actually. I heard Simon Armitage talking about that the other night on the radio as well. That, that thing of the teacher putting something on the wall and saying, yeah. look, boys, this is actually very good. Yeah, yeah. And it means something. Yeah, so like the Texaco art competition is creating a generation of disillusioned, <laughs> <laughs> impoverished. <laughs> and um, But of course you weren't, maybe you were, you probably weren't thinking that writing was something you would do in a serious manner. In a, not at that stage of life. I always wanted either to, which actually leads us <laughs> to the next choice. Um, I always wanted to do something with animals. I was obsessed with animals um, early in life. So I guess a vet, but I didn't quite understand that, um, that you know, that vet was medicine. Um, or, uh, or so like the art kind of, it, it only became established as sort of something I might do as a career path when I realised that you could study art in college. But um, stay, staying with the animals for a minute, were you were you interested in animals um, in the way maybe a kid growing on a farm might know about animals, or were you were you bird watching? Were you collecting insects and, and all that sort of stuff? The bird watching came well, the, everything. I mean, I remember there being a nature table in schools. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there still are now, um, and you know, being always keen to sort of collect things and to identify them, and having little sort of bug jars and. Uh, we had books, you know, about things you could pick up. And, and that was a massive part. I mean, I grew up in the countryside mm. um, and we had uh, a pretty big garden and we never never lived on a farm, but I seem to have always lived close to farms. So there was cows right behind us. And um, so that was very much um, that was very much a part of it. But when I was a bit older than after the, the Michael Jackson phase, um, I became uh, kind of very fundamentally vegetarian. And this that. I remember exactly why this happened. This was like 1995. It was the year Babe the Sheep Pig came out. Mm-hmm. And after I saw that film, that's I've never eaten. It had had effect <laughs> on a lot of people, actually, didn't it? I'd say there's... I've never met anyone else who's admitted to that being the reason they're vegetarian. But... Um, but that's that's my reason, and to this day I'm vegetarian. Um, but uh, but I kind of took it quite far, and I ended up um, joining uh, I'm sure a charity that's still there, a vegan charity called Viva. And I remember wearing these little badges that said like, "If it's got a face, I don't eat it." Um, and this song that I I I think I came across Melanie a bit later on in life. Um, but Melanie was again like a, a singer from my mum's era as opposed to my era. And she covered Ruby Tuesday. It was her cover of Ruby Tuesday that I knew. Um, she also covered Tambourine Man and various other songs. She was brand new Pearl Rose Kids. 
<laughs> Brand new pair of roller skis. No, the reason that she's in my mind is she was on Jules Holland at the, over the New Year. Oh, on, yeah, yeah. On, on, the, on the Hootenanny and she sang the uh, I Got a Brand New Pair of Roller Skates. Pair of Roller Skates. Yeah. Okay, yeah, she's still alive. Yeah. Um, probably not that it's old. because she doesn't need animals, sure. probably. But this is, yeah, yeah. So um, I still love this song. It's just, I seem to have a tendency for like funny, quirky little folk songs. And, <laughs> and I'll live on vegetables and I'll grow on seeds. But I won't eat animals and they won't need me. Oh no, I'll live on life. I want nothing dead in me, you know. That's Melanie there, and I don't eat animals. And uh, the choice of Sarah Baum, who's with me in studio, who, do, do you still refrain from eating animals? I still refrain from, I do eat fish. My, oh. my, um, my premise now is if I can't kill it myself, I won't eat it, and I can kill fish. <laughs> okay. Do you regularly kill fish, yeah? No, no, I once killed a mackerel. Um, my, my partner catches a lot of fish and, oh. um, and I wanted to establish this as my premise. So he allowed me to kill a mackerel, which was traumatic. But now I'm able to eat them. <laughs> I don't kill all the fish I eat myself. No, that's just right. a disclaimer. Okay. But if, if called upon to do so, you I could, could kill. Yeah. If in theory I can kill this thing, I will, I will eat it. I okay. Fair enough. If you learn, if you take nothing else away from tonight's programme, ladies and gentlemen, that's that's it. So, um, right, compositions on the wall, you know, you've got a talent for this. Um, maybe just, can we jump right ahead into, you know, secondary school, wherever that was? Did you have to go into the city for that or where were you? Uh, no, Middleton, which um, uh. which also becomes relevant to my music choices. Um, but uh, yeah, that was the secondary school, which would have been, my national school was a very small country one. And there's Gould. Um, and then the secondary school was like, yeah, the closest town. Middleton is now best known for the whiskey distillery. Mm. And did you throw yourself into secondary education? Were you, were you a model student? Were you kind of academic? I was a nerd, definitely. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't a cool kid at all. <laughs> and I was always in the A class, you know, the kind of top stream. Um, but I did like, you know, I wasn't bullied or anything either. You know, mm. I had a good group of friends um, and, uh, and we were into our own things and people were respectful of that, you know. Um, so I had a good experience in secondary school. I did find it. Well, I mean, I didn't enjoy I always hated school um, because it was just it was doing, you know, you were keeping someone else's schedule. You know, you were following rules. And mm. um, but it wasn't. Um, did you have an idea of what you'd rather be doing? Yes. Yeah. Like right from primary school, like because I'm one of just two, two um, me and my sister and um, Emma's two years older than me. So she went, when she went off to school. When I was three, I clearly remember thinking, oh, great, we're rid of Emma now. I can just hang out with mum all day and we can like, you know, make our little drawings. And like to the extent that when I was that small, I couldn't speak properly. I could speak properly, but I refused to because I, I knew that Emma and mum could understand me and no one else needed to understand me. Mm -hmm. So I, I mispronounced or I failed to pronounce S's and F's and various other letters. But because they understood me, they just kind of let me babble on. And I remember before going to school, Mum had to teach me how to speak like everybody else. Um, um, and and I, I, for, it didn't quite hit me. Then suddenly I was sent to school with my sister and I was horrified because I didn't think I would ever be made to do this. And for the first three years of school, I cried every morning going in and said, please don't make me go to school, <laughs> which must have been a nightmare for my mother. Um, and are we talking, we're talking about primary school, aren't we? Mm. Yeah. 
obviously by secondary yeah, school I was a bit more compliant. <laughs> but, so art college is what you wanted to do. And um, you see, when you go to art college, you do a kind of a formation year, a foundation year, don't you? And that gives you an opportunity to do all sorts of things. Of things. Yeah, it depends on the college. Um, I actually did a year in Bally College, or right. sorry, Bally Fermat College yeah, of yeah. Further Education <laughs> um, f- as a kind of a, a PLC. And then after that, I did a year, yeah, kind of a general year, like mm. a core year where you do a bit of everything. And then you specialise for the last three and during that foundation year, did you lap that up or were you again thinking, no, I already know what I want to do? Um, I think no, I think I was happy to kind of do everything. Yeah. Um, but I always I was always pretty certain that I wanted to do sculpture, to do 3D was what they called it in um, in IADT, which is at college out in Dunleary at the time. They had a 3D, de- a 2D department, a 3D department and a 4D department. Right. 4D? <laughs> 4D being time based media photography and film yeah. and they were very strong still are on film um, they're the National Film School now but uh, this was as part of a fine art degree and um, why do you think sculpture I mean of course you've got a you've got a different idea I mean people listening might think sculpture means marble busts of Greek, oh, Greek yeah. heroes mm-hmm. sculpture doesn't really mean that I mean it does but it means more than that what you know where were you exposed to types of sculpture where you had a broader view of what sculpture actually was. Oh, yeah. Well, as soon as I was interested in going to art school, um, my mum would bring me up to um, to IMA. When did IMA open? Around 1991, I think. Yeah, so it would have been quite new, but, you know, reasonably well established. Um, and I guess I'd always, we'd always been brought in and out of the Crawford Art Gallery as kids, but that would have been more classical mm-hmm. then, um, not now. Um, it's a really interesting space now, but... Um, uh, but she had a sense, I suppose, that I was interested in. She wanted to show me modern art. Um, and uh, and I remember then that would have been like, I guess, the mid to late 90s. So I was already then seeing work by Dorothy Cross, mm-hmm. Kathy Prendergast, um, uh, Alice Maher, Eileen O'Connell, Maud Cotter, these kind of really strong generation of women sculptors. Um, and I loved the kind of sculpture I loved wasn't marble busts. It was, um, you know, like the berry dress or mm-hmm. um, or uh, the udders. I so vibrantly remember all the, the Dorothy Cross udders yeah. in various different configurations. Um, and I, I would have seen that kind of work consistently you know, over the period of time in which I was working up towards college. Um, and I had a f- huge influence on me, you know, as, as a writer and an artist. It's great you um, saw that so early, isn't it? Yeah. You know, did you have a, any sense when you're at art college that you could take this on and it could be your life? It could be the way you and, lived your life? Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going for, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> but you, weren't, you, you didn't think it through to the point of, well... Where am I going to live? How am I going to have a studio? How am I going to make this stuff? How am I going to sell this stuff? All those aspects. No, no. And that's probably because, like, I suppose I probably wouldn't have known this at the time. But, you know, subsequently I interviewed Dorothy Cross for um, for a Winter Papers issue. And, you know, and she she showed me this, the sheds that she had originally built on the bit of land. And, you know, I lived in this shed and then I lived in this shed. And eventually I had a house and a studio. And so... I don't know that I necessarily knew that at the time, but... Um, and I think shed is actually, you know... Exaggerating what that hot, <laughs> what that hot actually was, you know. Um, and I think that so I I, I expected that. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, you weren't thinking about those things. You were getting on doing, no, doing what you wanted to do. And you also think, when you're, when you're that age, you think you're going to be like a superstar. You think you're going to be the one who like succeeds. Um, and you just have to, you have to function on that premise. I am going to be the one who succeeds and it will be okay. Um, and nobody questioning you in the background saying, well, it's all well and good, all this sculpture stuff, but how are you going to... You know? Oh, well, Dad. <laughs> I, I'm with him, actually. Yeah, I think he was right to ask that question he would have been he saw I mean he would have been a much more sort of traditional background mm. um, very working class Yorkshire family dad left school when he was about 15 um, and he would have liked I guess because I did so well in school he would have liked to have seen me do something like you know sort of law or teaching mm. or um, or medicine or something didn't do well enough for medicine but that would have provided me with a stable life you know mm. I think it's, you know which is what what's a stable life yeah that's next week's competition. <laughs> Your next musical choice is Bob Marley and the Wailers. Uh, why this one? Well, this this is, again, skipping back to, um, I was like uh, probably about 13 or 14 when I was into Bob Marley. And I have no idea where it came from. Um, Kevin Barry, when he was on this programme, mm -hmm. also had a Bob Marley um, a song or maybe a few of them. And he, he figured it was kind of to do with the sort of... Um, the oppression you feel as a teenager. If I remember correctly, <laughs> Kevin Barry said that Cork was the reggae capital of Europe. <laughs> well, maybe that was it. At the time. That's, I don't remember where it came from. I literally had all of his albums and um, found it very hard, to still listen to him, found it really hard to choose a song, but I chose this one because it's beautifully paired back. Like it's yeah. his probably least flowery song. I love this. And, um, and only can I... Uh, just uh, I only realized that it was I mean it was his last album Uprising and he knew when he wrote this that he had cancer so I always thought this was a song about slavery um, but his wife Rita apparently after he died said that this was a song about his own mortality as much as about slavery so there it is redemption song Bob Marley won't you help to sing these songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our That's Bob Marley there, Redemption Song. The choice of Sarah Baum, who's with me in studio. Picking all the tunes tonight. Do you remember the first thing you wrote, Sarah, where you thought, um, you know, this, this, is, this is for me, this is not a request of a school teacher or for a competition or something. I'm writing something for some reason that I can't quite fathom, but it's for me. Right. Um, I, I, I mean, I got into writing fiction by writing nonfiction, I suppose, by writing criticism, um, by writing about art. Um, but I do remember, um, I remember writing, I did history, I loved history in secondary school. And part of the history curriculum was um, you kind of wrote an essay, you researched a subject yourself, basically. And I wrote about my grandmother, who was in there, my mum's mum, who was in the Women's Royal Naval Service, the Wrens, during the Second World War. Your mother's um, mother. Yes, right. yeah, my maternal grandmother. Um, and I and I remember being pleased with that, and it felt more, it felt less like a history essay and mm -hmm. more like, you know, a, a story about my family, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and there was there was a satisfaction in that. Um, we'd always read a lot and that grandmother um, always had you know, books in the house and we would go up for afternoon tea and um, and discuss books. And from about 14, I would have been reading 
mums and granny's books kind of thing. Um, it's the grandmother who features in. In yes, exactly. A line, in a line made, made by, by walking. walking. Yeah, yeah. Well, based it, on the grandmother. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. No, we we'll we'll do the book. We'll do the books in the second half of the program because there's a lot of questions to be asked about all of that. But the, yeah, the, I, I'm aware that there were books in that house, and you were reading the mm. those old Penguin classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she she was such an interesting character because she. Um, uh, she wasn't allowed to talk about what she'd done in the war. Yeah. Um, she definitely went out to Sri Lanka at some point, so she was involved in the war in the Pacific, that end of things. But it was we, we had a sketchy understanding of it because she was sworn to secrecy. Um, she was definitely, I'd say, sort of involved with monitoring things, monitoring ships and that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, and then my other two on the other side of the family, both my grandparents were in the land army um, and that's how they met. And that's something that actually comes up in my most recent book. Um, but that was so it was that grandmother was the only one involved in active service. So I just thought she was sort of fascinating. So, it, it, so the, the, the writing, you know, as you say, you've done, you done criticism and that kind of thing. But those would be, be commissions of you know, jobs to be done. Mm. Um, but in terms of writing for yourself, it wasn't it didn't come out of any kind of crisis or anything. It just came out of writing about family and just making sense of things you didn't quite Well, it know. came out of um, writing about art. Um, so I, uh, it was when I was working in the Douglas Hyde Gallery, which was after art school, um, after, uh, after college, after art school, and after got a kind of a period in which I was sort of trying to make sculpture and um, didn't have the space. Um, and I worked, I did a long internship in the Douglas Hyde Gallery, and that was when I started writing about art because... It was a way, I mean, an awful lot of art students end up, you know, looking for gallery work. Um, And it was a way of, I guess, guess, engaging more deeply with what I was trying to do. But it was just reviews and bits of criticism. Mm -hmm. And then it was from that when I, it it started getting published quite easily. And I thought, okay, I have a flair for this, you know. Um, And it was after a while of doing that, I suppose, I thought, well, what do I actually love to read? And, you know, it wasn't art criticism, it was fiction. Um, So I had a go at fiction. Um, but I don't, I mean, the first things I would have written would have all been crap. I mean, it's all crap for years. Um, so I don't remember, I, there was no defining piece of fiction that made me think, okay, this is, this is brilliant, I'm going to... What readers, or what writers had you been reading? Because I, I, you know, I like to think when I read your books, I can, I can detect some of the people that I suspect you may have been reading then. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's pro- I'm not one of these writers who can't, read anything you know I read things that I want to infect me positively mm. when I'm writing I find that more useful than reading nothing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think if you read widely enough then all of those styles kind of get washed together and you come out with your own style well it's a kind of an obvious suggestion but when, you, when you're I know you're an art student so I, I know you probably read John Berger for instance yeah 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 um, um, uh, but around, but then before that, I would have been reading sort of John Steinbeck and mm-hmm. Hemingway, and uh, those would have been the older sort of classics that that Mum and Granny had around. Um, but then also sort of newer fiction, like I would have been reading Anne Enright quite young, mm-hmm. um, and then John McGahern. And um, I remember a defining book for me was um, The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Mm-hmm. That won the Booker in '98, so I guess I would have been late teens. 
but I remember reading that. For some reason, we were big fans of Anglo-Indian literature anyway. Well, there was um, a lot of that around at the time. At the and time, very successful, yeah, well, yeah. Samuel Rushbee, um, Vikram Seth. Rohan from Mystery. Rohan from Mystery, yeah, 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 probably my absolute favourite. Um, have mm. you read A Fine Balance? Mm-hmm. That's, I adore that book. Um, but uh, the, the, the God of Small Things was very experimental, as in it sort of did away with punctuation as it should be. Um, and it was also like a gorgeous story. You really cared about the characters. And I was just fascinated by how if you were an artist, you could do what you wanted. You know, you could break all the rules and people would take it at that. You know, they would believe that because you had done it. And it, you know, and it went on to win all these awards. And, uh, um, and I just I, I kind of learned a lot from that. I felt like, OK, well, this is how to be an artist. You try and do something different. You know, you, you break certain rules. But then at the same time, you make people care, you know, that's an important thing for me. Um, I think experimental fiction is, is fine, but I still, um, I oft, it's often an endurance test for me to read it. I feel like I'm learning something, but I don't actually care about the world of the yeah, book. And very often not a word of it goes in. Yeah, yeah. We're here until nine o'clock. Sarah Baum is picking the music tonight. We're going to have uh, another choice before we take, take a break. This next one is is what? Oh, Cycle, cycle Fly. This, this wow. is very not Lyric FM. That's okay, neither am I. There's a Middleton connection. This is right. uh, this was the phase of my life in which I was into he- very heavy music. Um, and this was my sister's influence. Um, in a way, she was always a cool. And she would bring me to gigs with her cool boyfriend um, and get me in. We would pretend to be twins um, and get in. Um, well, here, this maybe only happened once, but I remember it like that. And I just, I mean, how cool of her to like, you know, bring in her dweeby little sister. Um, but Cyclefly were, well, are still alive, I'm sure, but no longer a band. I think they had maybe two albums, um, but they were from Middleton. Two of them were, and then two of them were French, um, Declan and Kieran O'Shea. And uh, it just, we saw them a few times. I saw, or no, me and my sister can't remember whether we saw them in Henry's or not. Um, but it was around that year I saw Muse in Henry's. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the very end of its life um, and uh, saw Cyclefly probably in like the park um, nightclub in the hotel in Middleton kind of thing. Um, But they did really well. They ended up touring with sort of Iggy Pop and Bush and people like that. Um, And uh, and I chose the song because, yeah, it's very, very much represents that, that late teens phase of life. This is Violet High from Cyclefly. That's uh, Cycle Fly, a song called Violet High. Sarah Baum is with me in the studio. You were enjoying that. You've still, you've still got that. <laughs> well, it was so novel because we used to see like Declan and Kieran around Middleton. Yeah. And so it sort of brought t- it to life for me. Like musicians are real people. Yeah. But there's a great um, line in that song that still resonates with me to this day. Um, I don't know if you can make it out from the song, but he says, um, for all the words I've badly wrote, I'll build a boat and let them float away. Well, let me stop you there. From all the words I've badly wrote. Which is bad. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it's ironic. But it works. Yeah, it works. It works. Okay, we're going to And t- I've often felt that if I could build a boat and float all the bad words away. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more, more music from Cerebon. 
And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. My guest tonight, the author Sarah Baum, is picking the music tonight. Her new book, Handiwork, is out on Wednesday. And uh, before we get to there, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither. This was the first book. It was 2015. When you produced this book, how did you feel about it? Did you think, uh, I, know what, I, I know what I'm doing here, or was it a leap in the dark? Um, it's everything I know in a way. Like, I think of books, and I didn't initially, like with Spill Simmer, I was trying to write a novel. Um, and so it's much more traditional than than the subsequent one, and or I, the one that's coming one. now, and the one that will be coming after. Um, I could never write such a novel-like novel again, I don't think. But it was, it's also just a chunk of autobiography. Like, everything I write is just a period of time in my life, which I'm illustrating or describing in some way in in an artwork, in fiction. You know, for me, I have art projects going simultaneously. And it's only now really that people even know about them, but the projects no one ever really sees. Um, and then the books are just other projects. You know, I work I work in, in woods and in plaster and in fabric, but I also work in words, you know, mm. and um, and people, <laughs> someone publishes them and people buy them. <laughs> and so to me, it was it was I was I was depicting that stage of my life. And are these um, are these things all equal to you in terms of your own head and your own practice as such? Are they all of equal force? Equal to me is yeah. one thing, but kind of equal to the world. Or yeah, I do, like. There's always. I've spent mostly the last number of years since 2015, 2014, writing because those products have proved to be of some use to the world. If that makes yeah, sense, people. Yeah. Someone cares about them. They're published, and people buy them. And people invite me to festivals and send me nice notes. And so I feel that that's what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make an income out of them, you know. I've been able to live on them since the first novel. Um, not frivolously at all, but um, but I, I, in a way, this is what handiwork is about. It's about, um, I'm perplexed by this insistence I still feel to work with my hands, even though, you know, it costs me money as opposed to makes me money. It costs me time. Um, it's quite often I discard things as soon as they're finished, you know, if they're not right in some way. Well, I, I want to get to handiwork separately because handiwork is a non-fiction. Yeah, It's yeah, a non-fiction yeah. book. And I want to want to get to the point where you make that make that jump. Um, Spill, Simmer, Falder, Wither was the first one. Then there was a line made by walking. And you've mentioned, you've said it, you brought it up, not me, autobiography. Yeah. Because it's, it's not the question you ask, is this mm-hmm. novel about you? Because mm-hmm. that's the question that does get asked and often gives offence, quite rightly, to, to writers. Of course not about me, I made it up. Mm-hmm. It's about something else. But this, these books are about you, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they are. Um, the first, less obviously so. Yeah. Well, it's about that time. It's about that era of my life. And during that era, what I was interested in, what surrounded me, what I was learning, you know. Um, so I, And by extension then, yeah, b- about me. I think you talked at the time about uh, a quarter-life crisis, which I thought was a good term. That was the second novel, the second yeah. One. That's kind of more or less what that... That sort of went back then to the earlier stage of my life. Yeah. Um, was that 25 then? That was, was that 25, qu- yes, life, going on 26. Quarter-life crisis. Yeah, yeah, which is optimistic, really, in terms of a quarter of a life. Well, I've been in a midlife crisis for the past, I don't know, 25 years. <laughs> and when I think about 25, I think, well, what have you got to be worried about? But still, when you're 25, you're 25 and everything's very real. Yeah, and I felt, I felt a huge failure at 25 because I kind of thought that if I was going to be, 
distinguished at anything, it would have happened by 25. Or if I was going to be a child genius, obviously they would have figured that out before mm -hmm. 25, you know. Um, I grew up quite slowly in that way, but I don't think necessarily terribly different to anyone Because you talk in the era. second book, don't you? If I, no, I, I hope I'm not mixing up the two books. I don't think I am. In the second book, you talk about how you'd been kind of misled by Disney. Yes, yeah, yeah. That you thought everything was going to be... That, oh, that's it, to follow your dreams and you can achieve anything, mm. um, you know, and then you actually learn that that's not true. It's your average. That's what everyone, you know, most people are average. That's what the meaning of that's average, what average is. means. Yeah. yeah, of course you're average. And yeah. I think and I've seen it in an awful lot of my contemporaries, mm. possibly more specifically in the arts. But you're built up to this point in life and then you realize that, no, your life's probably just going to be ordinary. And then you have to readjust and accept that, you know, accept your 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 ordinariness um, and find a way to, to cope with that. And, you know, and then quite often end up depressed because but it's and it seems nuts because we shouldn't have ha expected it in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I don't feel that people necessarily of my parents generation did. Um, they just expected less. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, that sounds very old fashioned of me, but but I think there's a lot to be said for it. And that's sort of what the second book explores, even though when I wrote it, I was I was in my early 30s. So I, I had gotten over all that, but I still wanted to explore it. I kind of felt that there was I felt that, well, I'd signed a two book deal. So in a way, I might never have explored it had I not felt under pressure to deliver to yeah. a second book. Now, depressed, depressed is a word that gets used nowadays um, in its proper sense. You know, it's, and, and it's taken more seriously now as, as, as a thing. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about depression or are we talking about just being kind of lost or adrift? Or, you know, how would you quantify what you well, were talking I think about in that, that book? I gets confused all the time, yeah. I think. There's clinical depression yeah. and there's there's lostness and confusion. Yeah. And, and it got, I mean, the book is really about someone who is lost and disillusioned and yeah. confused but who is then diagnosed as clinically depressed mm -hmm. um, and in a way I suppose that makes it worse for her because um, because she's she you know she feels it's more hopeless than it is perhaps um, but but I don't know I, d I do think the two get get confused a lot and I've been very reluctant to sort of be a spokesperson for mm -hmm. depression um, because I feel that there are people going through things that I didn't go through and yeah. never did. You know. And then the autobiographical part of it gets tricky then because people say, well, did that happen to you? And did that happen to you? And obviously there's things in this book that aren't, that you, oh, did, that that I... you did make up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, and there's things in it that I can't remember whether they're true or not, to be honest. I mean, even the yeah. period of time, I definitely lived in my grandmother's house for a period of time after she died when it was on the market. But was it a year? Was it yeah. a summer? I don't remember anymore. You've, you've I'm been, sure I could find out easily. <laughs> you were dwelling for so long in in the writing of the book that your version of things has become the real. As ex version, yeah, 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 that's happened with the first book as well. That yeah. I can't fully remember whether this was a, a detail I made up or a detail that that was actually there, yeah. um, because the first novel describes in rather minute detail where we were living at the time, and you know the the walks we would take and this experience with the dog that um, that you know we had these romantic notions about having a lovely um, a lovely dog that would you know enrich our lives and the dog ended up being a psycho and sort of attacking people <laughs> and so it became you know it was a way of sort of filtering that experience and in the second book you did go and live in this in your grandmother's house and read the books and yes yeah but chronologically you know the the second book happened in my life before the first book right i think that as often happens with novels um i think the sort of first novel ends up being 
the second novel and the second. Yeah, because uh, I, I doubt if you had some master plan, you wrote the first book and then it took off and then you have to write another one. Yeah, yeah. And you are, I think with a lot of writers, it's like their, their debut novel takes their entire life up until that yeah. point and writes it. <laughs> what else is there? And then you realise that, the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything else. Your next uh, musical choice is... Oh, this is my art ah, school choice. Bjork. It's so so typically art school. But I just remember someone, a friend had uh, Homogenic, Homogenic, um, that album. Um, and would play it over and over um, in opposition to a guy who used to play Bob Dylan consistently. Um, and I never I never had the strength of character to like bring in my own music and play it in the entire shared studio space. Um, but I always used to used to vie for the Bjork as opposed to. The <laughs> OK, this is yoga. And that's Björk and Yoga, the choice, or Yoga, the choice of uh, Sarah Baum is with me in studio. Sarah, you just on those first two books and the, the idea of, you know, being misled by Disney and you're told everything's going to be wonderful and then you realise, you know, 25, that, you know, it's not going to happen or all this goes on. Then, ironically, the success of the book probably threw you right back into that scenario again of, you know, you're, this book's done really well and, you know, you're going to be the next big thing and all this kind of stuff. More pressure. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, I mean, it did way better than I ever dreamed it would. Um, I never even sent it to any of the big publishers because I didn't imagine that it was that kind of book. And um, Tramp Press, who, you know, are so, <laughs> such, such a, a force to be reckoned with, mm. um, made a huge success of the first one. And then it did sell on to bigger publishers and in the US and translation rights and all that. Um, and since then, I've been more or less, you know, it's I'm still talking about it kind of thing, um, which is in one way, you know, yeah. a privilege. And then in another way, kind of like, <laughs> it's funny how, you know, when, when something ends, I, artistically, it's over. Like I used to say, as soon as the object was finished as soon as you made the sculpture the sculpture was dead really you know mm. um, and books the same as soon as they go into print um, I sort of stop worrying about them because I can't change them anymore would you change them yes but yeah. but but I can't be bothered either because you're on to the next thing yeah. you know um, and there they were a like it's taken me a lot I used to be much more anxious about uh, about sort of my whole reputation and career and now I just think everything is just a moment in time you know mm. that's what I did then and you know now I'm doing this now and um, and it's easier to cope when you think of it that way um, so I do I mean I'll probably never have a book that does as well commercially as Spill Simmer um, but that's not what interests me as an artist but again you know? but you know when you are successful uh, pressure comes in from other places, strange places mm. where you don't expect, uh, you know, because people can make money out of you. And I don't mean you're, mm. I don't mean Trump because they're brilliant people, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant people. But what I'm saying is there may be, there may be a pressure for you to write that book again. Yeah, 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 uh, the, the sequel, yeah. One Eye, the sequel. Um, <laughs> that's the running joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I ever fall on hard times, I just write a follow up to the dog book. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've, I've never f felt that from, 
from my publishers. I guess it's because your starting point is Tram Press and not mm. not some big corporate juggernaut. Which yeah, and know. I mean to be fair, the the first two were also published by William Heinemann in the UK. I never felt any, under any pressure from them either. But I think it's good that your starting point though is Tramp. You know, yeah. that, that's mm. who you're dealing with as the book has been made, mm-hmm. it's been formed. And, and, and they're, they're the last people who'll be saying to you, write the previous book again. Yeah, or, yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they have a very strong sense of like, let the artists do what they want. Um, did you see, and then uh, we'll deal with it. <laughs> but, but I think you said at some point, maybe it was, maybe it was with, during the second book, that you actually didn't like writing. No, well, that was, geez, that was the first interview I did with Sinead Gleeson. And you know the way when they pull out a quote um, from an interview and put that in the like big print on the newspaper? Was this something a, like, was this in a newspaper, I hate writing. It? This was the Irish Times right. in 2015, so with the first one. And they pulled out, I actually hate writing, me saying this. I just felt so ungrateful, you know, <laughs> that here I was doing well, this book sort of having a fuss. And well, I mean, I know that can, that can, that can probably sound sound wrong so let me let me put it let me put it this way to you um when the first book was a success did you think oh great i could do this till the cows come home this is what i want to do i want to spend the rest of my life as a writer or did i think or did you think, oh shit yeah, <laughs> I don't, i'm not sure I, i'm not sure i can go through this again um, I did, no, I want to, the, the problem is like, I, I do hate the, uh, the act of writing. Um, it's like exercise, you know, it, it hurts. Mm. And then, but when it's over, it's so satisfying to have gotten to the end of the thing. Now, when you say to have hurt, gotten it right. hurt, you mean mentally or physically or both? Oh, no, well, mentally, you know, yeah. it's, um, I always think, I mean, this is something, again, I write about in handiwork, but it's not like you're doing a repetitive motion over and over. I guess with artwork, you have an idea, you figure out, you know, then there's a period of kind of experiment where you figure out what you're making and how you're making it. And then you're kind of just doing the same thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And there's a great comfort in that. Um, You know, imagine at its simplest, it's just sewing, you know, it's embroidery or something like that. You're just making the stitch and making the stitch and making this. You can sort of switch off and, and dream. But like writing is constant pressure, you know, so you have to be constantly attuned to the sentence that you're in. You have to be constantly thinking, OK, what's the next line? What's the next word? Is that the best possible word I could use? How do I finish this sentence? You know, what's the next sentence? Um, so you can never sort of just switch off and and do the thing. And and then as a result of that, it's kind of boring and it's so hard to keep yourself. I mean, you know this, you know, to keep yourself in the zone of the thing that you're writing. So it's in that sense, it's hard. Um, it's arduous. But the payoff that you get, the, the satisfaction of having done done well something that was hard to do is is immense. And you don't get that with something that's easy to do. And what about just stamina? You know, if, if, you're, if you were told tomorrow, right, you've got to write another novel now, you'd think, oh, God, no, I just cannot. I cannot face that. Because it's, it, it also demands stamina. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would never write a novel unless I felt, the novel needed to be written. Right. I, I'd continue to have ideas almost annoyingly because when I finished the last novel, I said in a few interviews, that's it, I'm not writing anything again. <laughs> I'm done with that now. Yeah. I'm going to go back to being an artist to just working with my hands. And well, that wasn't a, that wasn't an entirely a throwaway comment. You actually, you I mean, you meant that. I meant it, it at the time. Yeah. But then you continue. I mean, and then it was through working with my hands that I started to that I started to realise that I, I wanted to explain it, I suppose. We'll talk about all that in just a second, but I want to get one more track from you just now, Sorry, Sufjan Stevens is your next on the list. Yeah, this is a Christmas song. I didn't fully realise. Don't worry. Sister Winter, Sufjan Stevens. Mm-hmm. 
Sufjan Stevens, Sister Winter, choice of Sarah Baum, who's with me in studio. Now, Sarah, just before the break, you were talking about the new book, Handiwork. It's non-fiction. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that, given that the previous books were, were fiction, but were um, a lot of autobiography in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, non-fiction, you'd, all, you'd written art reviews and criticism and various things before. Did you find non-fiction an easy, an easy move to make in this regard? Well, like I never thought, okay, I'm going to write a non-fiction book now. This is the next thing. Um, instead, what I thought was, like, I'm not going to write anything again. Um, well, not forever, but, you know, I thought I'm going to give it a year and work on sculpture again. Um, but at this stage, you know, in the aftermath of art college, the things that I've been making now for the last number of years, I guess, are very much in the spirit of handicraft. So I take, um, I take, I sort of steal from the tools and materials of amateur craft and sort of adapt them in a slightly bonkers way to, to a project that's more concept based, I suppose. Um, but I'm very interested in uh, this. All comes up in the book in amateur craft, and it's well. What's amateur craft? What is that? Well, amateur craft is like railway modelling is something I talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, paint by numbers, you know. Like if you go into the art and hobby shop and you see, it would be more so, I guess, um, art that's based on kits. But I mean, yeah. crocheting, um, cross stitch, airfix models. Airfix models, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it came about as a kind of a, um, yeah, as, as a rebellion against capitalism. Um, when I started reading about amateur craft, I became very interested in its its origins. Uh, I mean, not not that consciously, but um, but placed in that context, as in you know, free time. Um, what do we do with our time? And when sort of since the Industrial Revolution or whatever, time has been very organised. You know, you work for Mm. however many hours and then what you do with the rest of your time, um, doing something completely useless with it can kind of be seen as a form of rebellion. Mm. Um, I'm explaining this really badly. No, no. (laughs) There's a book, uh, there's a guy called Stephen Knott who's an academic and he's written a great book called... uh, the history and theory of amateur craft, and um, and anyway, I've gone way off topic. But but does um, that extend to I don't know jigsaw puzzles and things like that? Uh, Maybe not. Probably not puzzles, but mm. making the making of board games, which was something that actually came into my first novel. Um, I you see, it's loose, and like I say, what I do is I take the tools and do something else with them, mm-hmm. sort of subvert them in some way. Um, but anyway, so but. What's important, what's very important to me is The Handmaid. Um, and the more that I that I wrote, I suppose, the, the more I would also want to balance it with the work of the hands. Like I say, I find writing arduous and difficult. Um, but I find working with my hands is catharsis after that, you know. Um, and I and so I was I in order to sort of recover in a way from having two novels out in quite quick succession over the course of two years I decided that I just wanted to work with my hands for a year or two and see how that went um uh but and and so then I guess after I quickly sort of became frustrated I guess I felt awful about the amount of time I was spending um on these useless projects you know seemingly useless projects and I started taking notes about why I felt this insistence to do it. And what fell into the same time period was, I think, my dad dying and feeling slightly bewildered and not wanting to write, perhaps because of that, because of grief, but also re-establishing a connection to him that I didn't fully realise, appreciate the um, the meaning of when he was alive. 
But I so that was something I was thinking about as I was writing. And then in the course of that, I was invited to show work um, to have an exhibition in London, which happened in 2018, at the end of 2018. So Handiwork was written in over about six months in the middle of 2018. And because I was being forced to consolidate the projects and um, and in conversation with the curator there, I was reading this book that I mentioned about amateur craft, but also books about the arts and crafts movement. I'm a big fan of William Morris mm-hmm. um, and not as a wallpaper designer for all of the other things that he was. Um, and, uh, and I mean, outsider art, something I've al- always been interested in. But I guess at the heart of all of my um, my research was, I mean, that's that sounds high, but there wasn't aeons of research. I was just kind of following my nose on topics that seemed relevant. Um, but what I was trying to figure out, I suppose, was what is this insistence that we have to go back to um, to the work of the hands? And what is it, you know, why am I so obsessed with these these objects in this completely, you know, dematerialized age that we live in? Mm. Um, and I don't think it's just me, of course. You know, we, we continue to buy books. Um, and even just since the book has been finished and I've been talking about it, you know, I realise how much people, there is this kind of hunger um, to go back to the handmade. Maybe not Maybe not in people younger than than me. Um, I don't know, because, you know, you were talking earlier I about I think there's a, sh- there's a big divide has happened. I think yeah. There's a big chasm between one generation and the next at the minute. Mm. Seems to me. But uh, that's a whole other programme. Mm. Um, at least. But the and what you're talking about, though, it seems there was no one reason why you went down this road. There are quite a few very solid reasons of why you, how you ended up writing this nonfiction book. Yes, yeah. So eventually I realised that it, this was I was writing something and it came to a point where it was too long to be an essay and too short to be a book. Um, so it became a short book. <laughs> it reminds me of, of um, I mentioned him earlier, John Berger and people like that, you know, yes. who, who would write that kind of a... Sure, ways of seeing is only about... <laughs> No, not, no, I don't mean in terms of the, the, you know, the width of the book, the amount of pages. I don't mean that, but I just okay. mean that kind of, that kind of methodical examination of stuff you already kind of know a bit about, but yeah. you've never actually, you've never actually. That's well, that you know, funny. Probably ways of seeing was there in my mind somewhere. Mm-mm. And specifically in terms of craft and amateur craft, because you you mentioned concepts there, conceptual art features. In a line made by walking, one of the things the narrator keeps doing is tests herself and remembers a piece of famous conceptual art. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you on board with, with that as well? I mean, you seem to have a very wide appreciation of Yeah, well, of that's art. it. I have a huge interest in that yeah. kind of art. And that was the kind of art that got me interested in mm. art. Um, now, this is the kind of art where someone films himself falling off a roof. Yes, yeah, you know. yeah. That was that was Bastian Ader, <laughs> and, uh, or or get someone to hold a gun to their head, or um, or actually shoot them. In the case of Chris Burden, um, but yeah, no, that was the kind of art that that it it really interests interests me. Sorry, on on an academic level, you know, I'm enthused about that, but I don't. That's not what I make myself. Yeah. I still have this connection to objects and to working with my hands and to craft. And I think, in a way, I was I wanted to defend craft. Um, you know, like I have no particular skill, so I would never call myself a crafts person. Um, but I'm still I'm I'm inventing my own little crafts and trying to perfect them. And yet know? there are some there are some well known artists, and they get the word craft is thrown at them like it's an insult too. You know that, that yeah that, yeah that, and and then some of them do has to be said work in a very industrial way. Yeah, they, they get other people to make stuff for them, and I mean the obvious example would be Jeff Koons, but there are others too. Yeah, yeah, some of my favorite artists don't even make their own stuff. Um, there's a Belgian artist called Francis Elise. Um, 
uh, Rachel White Reed is another artist I love. Um, um, okay, before we get uh, uh, bogged down in, in, in Jeff Koons and all the rest of it, your next musical choice is... Oh, uh, Joanna Newsom. Joanna Newsom, mm -hmm. right. Now tell me, where did you first find Joanna Newsom? Because she's very special. Well, and the, the last two, Sufan Stevens and Joanna Newsom, both would have come to me when I was working in the Douglas Hyde. Um, and I was there when John Hutchinson was the director. And a lot of people in the sort of art world will, will sort of know that John sort of defined an era um, in the Douglas Hyde. Um, and it was there when I was when, when I was there as an intern and then I kind of worked there on and off for a few years. I would have discovered uh, musicians like this, but also Cat Power, Janda. Did you want to do some play in, in the Douglas Hyde? Did you do a show oh, there? I I'm don't sure. think so, yeah. but I'm not 100% yeah, sure. That's some vague notion she may have done, but uh, certainly um, Cat Power did. Uh, definitely Cat Power did, and yeah. And a few others that, are, you know, you mightn't expect, but there they were. Yeah, and that was all sort of part of John's sensibility was was the music as well and the books uh, and the art. And so for me, it was just, it was hugely um, influential at that time of life. And I kind of found these things together. Well, we played two in a row there, the choice of Sarah Baum, who's with me in studio picking the music. That's Lisa O'Neill and uh, Dog Baby. And uh, before that, Joanna Newsom and Leave in the City. I guess the Dog Baby one, uh, Sarah, was a reference to the first book, Spill, Simmer, Falder, Wither. Yeah, to our Dog Baby. I did, we spent a long time trying to decide on the right dog song. but um, <laughs> There are lots of them. Yeah, there, there are lots, but I love Lisa O'Neill anyway. And, um, and I, I thought... Uh, that was from a charity album that Kathy Davy put together a couple oh, of years right, ago. Oh, right, for the animal sanctuary yeah. and all that, horse sanctuary and all that. Yes, yeah. so it's very, um, it pushes all my buttons, rescue animals. And oh, <laughs> I seem to recall when I interviewed you, Sarah, when Spill, Simmer, Falder, Wither came out in 2015, that you, you had actually read as many books as you could find about dogs. No, I did an essay for The dog Stinging books. Fly about, yeah, on dog literature. And it was as a way of, like, justifying that this was a literary novel, um, which sounds terribly pretentious, but I, I was afraid people would kind of go, oh, Marley, and it must be like Marley and me. Or, yeah. um, <laughs> um, so I... The or, only one I can think of off the top of my head is, is, is Paul Auster's book. Tim oh, yeah, Book, Timbuk 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 yeah. Yeah, that was the one I read. And that, that was written from the point of view of a dog, Of a dog, it? yes, yeah. to mixed success, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's Paul Auster, it doesn't matter. The best one is um, Heart of a Dog, Mikhail Bugalov. All um, oh, right. Yes. Who wrote Master and Margarita? Yeah, yeah. I haven't read that, but I've read Master and Margarita. I have no idea what it was about, but I loved it. That yeah. <laughs> I haven't actually read Master and Margarita, but um, Heart of a Dog is just just bonkers. I can't. Um, I mean, 
there's anyway yeah no I won't go into the plot but there's also a weird film if you want to like uh, cut straight to the film so there is there is actually quite a bit of, of dog literature out there it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's supposed to it's bound to be yeah, lots well, of the, people have dogs and the love one their that, dog that surprised me was um, Virginia Woolf wrote an a biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Cocker Spaniel. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was also yeah. a poet, but she was married to the, the other Browning. Robert Browning. Robert Browning, sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, um, I didn't know she'd written about... Uh, yeah, and it was a commercial success. Really? Yeah, but I think she was kind of embarrassed about it later on. It probably, wasn't very Virginia Woolf. It's probably her best book. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm just trying to raise a row here. So, um, uh, so we had Dog Baby, then we had Joanna Newsom. Uh, before that, that again, the the handiwork book. Now that you've completed that, and I, I'm sure the first two books might have might have taken quite a bit out of you. I suspect, you know, just to to go there. Mm. But the handiwork book, that you know, how, how do you feel it having having completed it? Um, it's really short, so I kind of feel that I'm I've gotten away with it being a whole book. To be honest, um, it has a connection to what the next novel will be they're kind of they're kind of a set in a weird way right okay um so anyway that's 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 and was that was that always the plan or is this something you it came was sort upon? of a mistake but right. like i say i'm always just writing an era of my life in a way right. so because they both come from the same era um i think everything is really connected when you sit back and you look at it and you're like whoa that's just like that yeah but Even i kind it, of yeah. like that like you you can accuse me of repeating myself and you would you would be right but I quite like that in other people's work. I like to see the resonances that work that run through a body of work. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, when a writer returns to a topic again and again, that's interesting to me. And in terms of those periods of your life, like there are there are periods of my life I can't account for at all because I've been too busy or you know too, you just never stop to think. You know, mm. but in your case, when you're you know you're not old, so you're talking about short periods of time in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have complete recollection? Do you have diaries? Do you keep notes as you go along? I don't think that's not really what I mean when I say I'm describing. You know, I, I suppose it's 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 almost I'm I'm fictionalizing eras of my mm. life, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for example, I guess in the things that I make in the art projects, they're also telling a story about a period of my life, but they're really only in the sense that they're they're about a topic that I was interested in, you know, of, often not even obviously about a topic. Um, uh, can I give an example? Because it's By kinda, all means, yeah. Like for the last year and a half, I've become really interested in birds. And this is something that I write about in Handiwork. Um, but I also, this started with a trip to um, the bird observatory on Cape Clear. Cape Clear Island is off the coast of West Cork. Um, and it's the only manned bird observatory in Ireland. And... Uh, they're, they're a really interesting spot for birders because basically they're our most southerly point. They're kind of out in the Atlantic. They're about eight miles off the um, off the mainland. And um, they get a lot of um, vagrant birds, which are basically birds that are lost. They're rare birds that have come from like America and been blown off course by Atlantic storms. And they turn up on Cape Clear because this is like the first port yeah. of call in a storm. Um, and I just, when I heard this story, I was doing a course on Cape Clear, just a, a general Birdwatch Ireland course. And uh, when I heard this story about the lost and accidental birds um, and how like the birders get really excited about them because they're rare. So they yeah. all rush to see this little bird. But then the little bird itself is just completely bewildered and usually dies within a few days. Um, but I just thought that it was so resonant. There's something very, you know, when you think about obviously the 
confusion in nature and the decline of birds, but then also the um, migration and the amount of migrants that are getting lost at sea at the moment. It just seemed like such a rich topic um, that I could say something with without going into anything very deep or political with merely staying with the birds. Um, so I asked the um, the warden there, who's this wonderful guy called Steve Wing. Um, Steve Wing? Steve Wing, yeah. Steve Wing. <laughs> He's been on EcoEye now, yeah. um, so he has quite his own, his own public reputation. Um, but he gave me, I asked, he's such a cool person because I'd say he just thinks I'm this bonkers artist. And I asked him for a list of the... Um, uh, of the all of the birds, the vagrant birds that had made landfall there in the last sixty years, because it's it's just marked its sixtieth anniversary, and I'm making from that. Um, well, I'm nearly finished them now, and I've been at them for about a year and a half. A series of um, of embroideries, basically, but they're completely abstract. The embroideries, so um, they're just a sequence of of stitches, um, all all uniform, completely uninteresting. But the point of them is that they take the bird, they're pictures of the bird from the top of its head to the to the tip of its tail. Um, so they're kind of plumage samplers in a way. Um, but anyway, I guess <laughs> of this, this very um, convoluted story is just a means of describing how this is something that I'm interested in that means something to me at this stage of life. So I will spend then a year and a half sort of articulating it in materials. And, you know, and this interest has come out in the book as well. Um, and, you know, in years, I guess you could put all of that work together from this decade of my life or whatever it will be and see that, you know, this this obsession with birds. Um, but it's taken different forms and it's but, and it's never a clear description. And it's it, and it's not a diary, anything. It says nothing in particular about, um, you know, about about the personal events of my life. And that novel has been have you begun it yet, or are you? Oh, the novel, yeah. Oh, it's it's kind of more or less there. It still needs a lot of tightening, is, is wow. how I'd say. Again, it's extremely short, so in a way, the two books are only add up to one real book. <laughs> Your next choice is The Smiths. Good times for a change. See the luck I've had can make a good man turn bad. So please, please, please Let me, let me, let me Let me get what I want this time There you go. Please, please, please let me get what I want. The Smiths, uh, Sarah Baum. I'd say you didn't pick that just by chance. No, no, this sort of marks the entry of Mark into my life. I'm just sorry to repeat myself, but uh, Mark's my partner now for the last nearly 10 years. And uh, he gave me this album around the time we moved in together. Um, and for the first five years, I'd say that we lived together, we lived, um, we were, we were on the dole. Um, neither of us, we, the idea was, the, the premise was we were going to move to the countryside, live in cheap accommodation um, and be artists. And, uh, and, we, this was like 2011 we left Dublin because the rents were too high and yeah. like, oh my God, they've only gotten higher and higher since. Um, but we could afford to live on the dole if we lived elsewhere, if we lived in the middle of nowhere. And we both always wanted to live by the sea. Um, so we we began in this really like compromised version of the sea dream, which became my first novel. Um, uh, so we were in a little village called Whitegate. Um, which is on, it's in Cork Harbour, but there's basically like an oil refinery on one side of it and a power station on the other. And this big sort of smelly bay in the middle that's mudflats most of the time. So you could see the sea, but it had like lots of uh, container ships coming in and out across it. <laughs> and um, and I just, that to me, that song is... Uh, 
it it just uh, it describes those years so well. You know, when when we were both sort of desperate to succeed and a I bit. I think when we lost. spoke around that time too, you were you were you described your existence as quite. Uh, monastic or frugal or something you know it was all well I mean initially we were both I mean we had on and off had jobs he worked for quite a while in Cove Museum um, on a CE scheme and I was waitressing a little bit but mostly we were on the dole so yeah I mean it was frugal Um, but and I mean it it continues to be frugal it's just that neither of us avail of social welfare anymore Um, um, and and it was yeah, but but I it felt it just it felt like that was the decision you know I've never I'm not complaining because um, and I never really have complained because those are the choices that I've made in life you mm. know I've never been interested in pursuing something for its financial rewards and as a result of which you know I don't own much I don't have property um, I, I you know I I have we don't go on holidays but that's fine but you, you because said we it, get yeah you said at the start though it was never about money. No. But money did, uh, you know, enter the equation because the book was a success and translations and all that. And I, I don't care or want to know how much money or any of that kind of thing. But you, you went from having no money to having money. Yeah, yeah. But that yeah. still hasn't changed your attitude to money. No, no. See, we went from having sort of enough money to get by to having enough money to get by from a different source, you know. Mm. And for me, it's whatever the money I have, I'll always be trying to spin it out for as long as I possibly can. So the idea of living frivolously is is ridiculous because that could, cut a year out of you know be, I just don't want a day job you know um, just whatever we can do to stay off the day both. job <laughs> <laughs> next choice is I want to get as many of these in as you can oh a cheery oh, number from Barry Maguire from way back in, <laughs> way back in the day this this needs no introduction but you may have something you want to I do this say. is a good story can I tell it if you want to play it I'll play it first and you can tell the story afterwards does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, I've known that song all my life. I haven't probably listened to it, and I can't believe how uh, how much it sounds like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band the whole way through. But uh, Barry Maguire, I, th- I thought Eve it was Destruction. Bruce Springsteen until I looked it up and realised it was someone called Brian Barry Maguire. <laughs> maybe reassess Bruce. He's probably only got one record in his record collection, and that's it. But well, if it seems completely out of step with my tastes, um, it's kind of the song for my dad. And I put it in toward the end because dad died four years ago. And when he died, he, I mean, we hadn't really talked about a funeral. He didn't want a, tech, a, a regular, like, Catholic funeral. I mean, he wasn't Catholic. So we were kind of suddenly um, suddenly saddled with some kind of a ceremony, a, you know, a, a crematorium ceremony that would... And we were like, what music, what music, what kind of music? And managed to come up with a few songs. And like this song was the only thing I remember him getting excited about, like actually singing along to completely tunelessly and driving us to some sort of camping holiday somewhere. But the way I tell the story now, because I think it makes a good story, is that he went into the, you know, the way the 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 coffin goes into the pyre it sort of goes in in a kind of a I think sort of slightly weird creepy way and then the doors close or whatever it is that he went into eve of destruction (laughs) (laughs) 
which was just his humor. That was exactly his kind of sense of humor. But he actually didn't. That's I get confused. He actually went into um, Brothers in Arms, the Dire Straits, yeah. the Dire Straits. Um, and but we did play this one earlier, and uh, and I just think I think it's a really apt song now as well. Um, yeah, I suppose it it would have sounded. I mean, five years ago, that song would have sounded really dated. Yeah, and yeah. now it's not dated. Now it sounds like the kind of thing people should be singing on yeah. the streets. Um, slightly terrifying, really. Just before um, I let you go, uh, people listening, there may be a lot of people who write or are trying to write or hope to write, whatever it is. You've already described where you live. In what circumstances? And we we leave the sculpture to one side. The writing specifically. Where do you? Where do you write? What part of the house? What room of the house? Do you have a specific room? Do you have a shed? Do you go to the local cafe? What do you do? Well, we don't live now. After the first book did well, we moved to West Cork. Um, now, like we still only rent. Like we didn't buy a mansion or anything like that. Um, we just rent a slightly less, <laughs> a slightly less broken down property. And no, it's lovely actually. We rent a gorgeous farmhouse, um, and uh, but but the rent is is very um, is very reasonable, and it's there's much more space. So I have a little room now that's just for writing. I have kind of like what would have been the box room, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, in the old farmhouses, there's like two big rooms upstairs, two up or two downstairs yeah. and then there's like a little room in the middle um, so that's where I write and like it's decked out with my stuff but really you know handiwork is about all of the other stations in the house um, where where I make things where I make bits of handicraft but then where do you go when you're not working if you know what I mean if you're if you're in a room and there's a half finished piece lying on the corner or on the table when you're trying to eat your breakfast I mean how do you well that's sometimes I find that frustrating and I think it would be nice to have a dedicated space where you could put that away and not yeah. look at it when you're eating your dinner um, but on the other hand that's not the point that's that's out of that's not my philosophy as a, as a maker you know it's always there and it's a part of I mean and this was from William Morris he believed that art should be a part of everyday life um, you know it, it should it shouldn't be a separate thing that you go into a, a an isolated space and and create it should be a part of your life um, and so like I do you know and again I describe that in the book like I I I have specific projects that I've designed in order that I can do them at a certain time of the day. For example, I sew in the evenings because it's a really easy thing to do in front of the television. So I'll always have a sewing project on the go because <laughs> it's what I do when I watch television. You, you, ha- you, you have a television, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We're okay. not puritanical no, at no, all. But, <laughs> yeah, you no, know, but television can get in the way of all sorts of, uh, of good ideas. Good we, we only have the Irish channels. Right. Um, so, uh, that limits your options a bit. Oh, right. We don't have Netflix or anything yeah. like that and the internet's... Oh, no, the internet's okay. Okay, patchy. I don't think it would sustain Netflix. And um, uh, in terms of um, the both of you working in the same space, in the same, how does that how does that work? Does, what's the dynamic there? Oh, we have rooms. Yeah, so but we're still, not... you know, you must be tripping over each other all the time, aren't you? Yeah, I guess we are. Yeah, um, but I, it's funny. I think that, like I say, we've been together nearly ten years now, and I think if you actually, if you put it in the in the context of a normal relationship where people would go out to work and not see each other. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or maybe go on separate holidays. Or, yeah. Um, then we've probably been together 20 years, you know, yeah. because we do spend a lot of time together. Um, and, and you know, actually, the, next, the novel is a little bit about that in a way. It's about um, codependence. Uh, the, both the two previous novels have been about loneliness in some form or another. So I was trying to break that habit and write a, a novel about codependence. It just occurred to me the kind of, the kind of books that you write um, I'm not suggesting you do them in any other way, but you know, with Nausgaard and these sorts of people who just literally talk mm-hmm. about their life, are you in any way attracted to that straight up 
um, description, you know, word for word about what goes on in your life? No, no, because there's not enough art in it, yeah. you know. Um, I think obscuring from the truth slightly is more interesting. Mm. But it, obscuring, from the, er, obscuring from the truth completely is no, of no interest yeah. to me. Um, I think we should leave it there. That's a good way to put it. Uh, Sarah, your last choice is what? Um, the Swimming Song by Loudon Wainwright. Wainwright, yeah. Originally, but this is the Eddie Reader version. And again, this actually, we started with my mum and this sort of connects me back to my mum. We both swim now, um, swim in the sea. And this is kind of a new thing. And my grandmother used to swim in the sea. And I've been doing it now for about a year and I get much more of an opportunity because I'm right by the sea. Um, but it, uh, this was just a little ditty that um, she used to play, she used to have on some mixtape when we were kids. And it's always uh, stayed in my head. Sarah, um, thanks a million for coming in. I loved your choices of music. Handy work. Uh, the latest book is out on by the wonderful Tramp Press on Wednesday. So all the best with that. Thanks for coming Thank in, Sarah. Thank you very Sarah. much. Thank, Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.